Uh, welcome to uh, Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. And uh, this one is a, a, a little bit different because we're talking about different people who've got a bit of a difference in society at the moment. We're looking at individuals that are radicalised. We've seen a lot of reportage in Australia over the past six to 12 months in relation to various people who may or may not believe in the uh, the suite of conspiracy theories that fall in under the, the, the brand of or the title of QAnon. Not everybody fully understands how QAnon plays out, and it can often cause people a great deal of grief and concern when they start to hear things emerge as cults or belief sets or... Uh, appear to be the next ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Someone who's uniquely qualified, well qualified to explain all of this, is Sophia Moskalenko, who is an expert in radicalisation. She and her co-author, Clark McCauley, have written a range of papers and books on the subject matter. And she will talk to me about a new book that's come out that she's written with a, with a colleague called Pastels and Pedophiles a book on Kwanon. So, Sabia Moskalenko, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, an actual, it's actually a privilege. I've read, read a bit of his stuff, and it, uh, it's, it's particularly insightful and useful. But before we talk about Kwanon and other aspects of radicalisation, um, if you had to describe to someone who had never met you before uh, what your career um, has been up to this point, what would it look like on the back of an envelope? <laughs> um, I'm a psychologist, I'm trained as both clinical psychologist and, and social psychologist. And very early in my career, I became interested in why people turn to terrorism and how they change from being an average person to being this like very far outlier, you know, very different, very radical person. So that's what I've studied. I've studied radicalization, which is psychological progression, you know, from being outside of political issue to being so central to them that you can actually change them with self-sacrifice and, and violence. Um, and so I've written books on radicalization. I've written books on self-sacrifice. And just recently, because this is a recent phenomenon, um, I begun thinking about and writing about QAnon, um, which is a, a movement largely online based um, of people who believe in a very diverse set of conspiracy theories um, that span all the way from uh, things that like the, the earth is flat and they're lizard human hybrids that live among us, um, that there are space lasers, that are controlled by Jews and burn, um, you know, fires in California forests to this um, belief that a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles um, took over our government and the media. Um, and the members of this cabal include prominent political elites like the Clintons and, you know, the royal family in England um, and also Hollywood elites like Lady Gaga and Tom Hanks and, and opera. Um, and that Donald Trump, the ex-president, is a savior who is uniquely capable of taking down the cabal um, and installing, you know, the, the, the 
bright future slash past um, instead of the horror that we're living in right now. Before we dive deeply into QAnon, can we it, it explain in uh, the way, at least in, in plain English, um, what we mean by radicalization? Because sometimes I think people aren't certain how we how we use that particular label and it, it may be interpreted by people differently mm -hmm. based on your work what is the what is the most reasonable or the safest definition of radicalization radicalization is a process um, by which an individual or a small group or even an entire society an entire large collective um, progress from less to more acceptance of violence in the name of a cause, okay? So radicalization can, um, can be only an opinion. So I can go from thinking, it, in no case is it okay to um, aggress against another person or a policeman or um, even uh, somebody else's property, like you know, burning buildings or cars. Um, no matter how angry I am at them, to thinking, well, maybe in some instances is okay, to thinking, I really hope, you know, somebody does something, you know, to hurt that person. That's an example of radicalization and opinion. The radicalization is happening inside me, but only in my head. There's nothing that's happening that can be observed in my behavior. A different kind of radicalization happens sometimes in actions. So a person can go from doing nothing about a cause that they care about to maybe doing some small things like donating money toward a cause or signing petitions or going to some protests to support the cause to then maybe, you know, participating in protests as they turn violent, knowing that there's violence happening, they're still going to uh, be part of it. Um, and then one day, maybe they will start, you know, planning acts of violence, planning, uh, planning and building explosives or attacking people or attacking property. That's an example of radicalization in action. And the interesting thing is that those two radicalization vectors are not really closely related. So in fact, most people who experience very radical thoughts will never do anything about those thoughts. So in fact, most of us at some point or another probably thought along the lines of, I could kill that person, you know? Um, I think that about my kids frequently, but I'm never gonna do something like that. And most of us don't do something like that, even though we think something like that. Um, so the people who do something radical very often don't have an ideology to support their action. It sounds paradoxical to us, but all the data we have, it shows that people join terrorist groups or they, they take part in violent protests or they become entangled in, in radical activities for reasons that have nothing to do with ideology. Maybe it's for social reasons. Maybe their best friend is part of the movement. Maybe their brother, like in the case of Tsarnaev brothers, right? Um, maybe it's their spouse and they just can't, you know, stay behind. 
So they join them on whatever missions they're, they're going in. Sometimes the reasons are just for fun. This is especially true of young men um, who are high on testosterone and for them, um, getting involved in, in violent stuff offers a chance to establish status and just taking the risks for them is something enjoyable, right? Uh, insurance companies know this very well because in America, at least, if you're a young man, your car insurance premium is going to be way higher than any other demographic category because insurance companies see in their data that young men will do stupid, crazy things that are dangerous to them and others for no other reason that they want to do it. And sometimes those crazy, risky things that are dangerous are radicalism and terrorism. So opinion and action, um, both can see radicalizing changes, um, not often at the same time, right? And uh, one last big thing about radicalization that um, you want to know is that between the person who is not really interested and the person who is, you know, uh, killing people or giving up their own life for an idea, um, the pathway is not necessarily long. It can happen very fast. It's not necessarily gradual. So a person can go from zero to 100 just because they've had some transformative experience or observed something that's very dramatic. Um, and this pathway is not the same for everybody. So my co-author Clark McCauley and I, we, we counted 12 different pathways that can bring individuals and groups to terrorism. That's just an idea of how varied this, this road is. So it's, it's a very nuanced and, and complicated situation um, that is, is, especially, you know, when we talk about terrorism, uh, people want a simple explanation and, and they want to know, you know, who the bad guys are and how to get them. Um, but the truth is uh, the bad guys are often very much like the good guys. If you look at their psychological profile and their upbringing, they don't look any different. It's just the set of circumstances that brought them to this point can be drastically different. And so there is no profile for a terrorist. Um, and depending on, on you know, the historical moment and, and the social environment of the person, chances are you know, most of us are capable of something like that. So starting from that point of view really helps to understand these other people. There's one thing you said that uh, resonates with some of the events that have been happening in Australia of late. We've seen people who uh, belong to far-right groups, um, typically young men, <laughs> um, and they've been involved in a range of incidents that have been pub reported publicly. Uh, is in terms of the psychology of um, you know, people in that space, are you seeing? Do you see much evidence that? It really is young people seeking camaraderie in some respects or that they actually believe, for example, in white supremacy or racial purity and 
it and then once they've gotten up with the group that then becomes what they think because they've just become a part of part of the movement that's carried them along but it, what are some of the things that, that, that trigger that kind of behavior that can trigger that kind of um uh, um need need for belonging right so um i am not familiar with the right wing groups in Australia. Um, so I, I will not be able to really, you know, speak to that. We have our own right wing situation in the United States. So maybe there are parallels. I'm sure with the online space kind of uniting people around yeah. the world, probably are. Um, and if so, then, um, then yeah, right wing militia groups in the United States um, attract a particular kind of person. In fact, they recruit they target for recruitment a very particular kind of person. Very often, it's somebody with experience from the military or police training. So they're, they're, they seek out individuals who are familiar with guns, who have a high tolerance for violence, who are risk takers, and who understand chain of command, right? Um, and these um, groups are mostly male-based. Some of them are quite overtly misogynistic. They don't allow women, they, they talk down, uh, you know, about women and so on. Um, their, their attraction uh, is this um, military-like organization hierarchy inside of them um, and routine exercises that they invite members to partake where they, you know, stage these military games somewhere in the woods, they run around, you know, with camouflage clothes and practice shooting and practice drills and plan operations. Or sometimes they um, infiltrate left-wing movements like the we have protests in Portland that were, um, you know, centered around the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And a, a number of these right-wing militia groups, they actively infiltrated um, the protests in order to then act as provocateurs. They would be the ones breaking windows, they would be the ones agitating for violence um, that then could be pinned on Antifa or whatever. Um, as far as ideology is concerned, um, again, talking now about the, um, the US-based right-wing um, groups, they're very inconsistent. If you if you read these in-depth interviews with, with some of these people, they contradict themselves. They they're not able to really coherently express. They're not like jihadists, you know, who know exactly what they're talking about. They will say, I'm not a racist, I'm not against black people, I have black friends. And then, you know, three sentences later, they're gonna talk about the superior white race and how you know we're being replaced. So it's self-contradictory. Um, and ideology is not really the main attraction of these groups. It's action. And the fact that it's mostly male and the fact that it's a very particular kind of male who is interested in like high stakes, high intensity, you know, military game style action, it speaks again to this being this risk and status mechanism of radicalization that um, a lot of young males are attracted to. But you're right, there are other reasons people join these groups. Conradery is one. Um, you know, some sort of meaning that, you know, they see in it, especially if their lives are otherwise kind of 
kind of empty, you know, and, and they feel that their jobs are not satisfying, they don't really see a direction, then these groups, um, they bring something in that, that these people, you know, lack and, and want. So, I mean, there, there are all kinds of reasons, but especially for right-wing militia style groups, risk and status is the number one attraction. We've raised the issue of structure there. Mm-hmm. Um, and some groups have some groups have structure. Uh, we know that back in the day when you know, Al Qaeda first began, it had a corporate style structure, and then it kind of had to sort of uh, create a break kind of up. sort of break up because all of a sudden a country called America had an interest in Afghanistan. But uh, after nine eleven. When we talk about QAnon, which is the topic of your most current work, we're not talking about something that has a structure, are we? Yeah, it's a very different group. It's uh, it's not hierarchically organized. It's a very horizontally uh, based grassroots, if you want, movement. There is no clear leadership. There's no chain of command. Unlike right-wing militia groups where, you know, these orders and and ideology flows kind of from top to bottom and you're expected to just accept it, you know, fully. You can't really say, okay, I'm going to believe this, but not that. I'm going to participate in this, but not that. It doesn't work like that with right-wing groups. With QAnon, it's very different. Every person, every follower um, is invited to do their own research, to come up with their own theories by connecting the dots I'm, I'm quoting their lingo so to speak right uh, and um there is no reconciliation among some of these uh conspiracy theories so for example some followers of QAnon believe that covid doesn't really exist that it's a hoax that there is no virus there is some seasonal flu that's going around but then it's blown out of proportion in order to you know, take over the world by Jews and so on, right? At the same time, some other QAnon believers say that QAnon is a uh, genetically modified virus that was designed in a Chinese weapons lab. Or if you're a QAnon believer in Russia, then it's designed in the NATO lab. I mean, it really varies, but, um, and that it's going to kill us all, right? So like these completely contradictory Theories are perfectly acceptable under the same QAnon umbrella. Um, you can believe in lizard people and flood earth um, and be a, Q- a, Q- a QAnon member, or you can laugh at that, uh, you know, but still believe in the cabal and the and the pedophiles and the blood drinking. So very different in many in many ways. It's, it's kind of like the the I. Um... All you can eat breakfast at a restaurant on a, on a, in the morning. You can choose whatever you want, the continental or, or the hot breakfast, and then that's quite on for you. Yeah, I, I, I like to say that it's kind of the Amazon for conspiracy theories. There's something there for everyone. just <laughs> depends on, on your appetite, you know, and budget. The, that, um, I'll make sure I use that at some point. But when we look at QAnon, we see, um, and correct me if you think I've, this is inappropriate from a point of view of analysis, 
and is it are we seeing people that are just in in search of in search of some kind of meaning um because they've lost faith in establishments they've lost faith in uh, established religion and they're trying to find something else that explains what's going on yeah meaning is one thing a lot of these people lost another thing they've lost is trust so they feel you know like they um they can't really rely on the medical system to do right by them they can't rely on the food industry to do right by them they can't rely on the government to do right by them all of these structures that are supposed to hold you know the sky above our heads instead of it falling right um in in these people's minds these structures have been eroded to the point where they don't hold anymore and so they seek something else to trust in and you know QAnon provides this narrative with donald trump as this white knight you know a superhero who's going to save us all uh and the cabal is kind of like this uh, catch-all for, for all the bad people. It's, it's, it's very much like a, a childhood fairy tale in a way. It reminds me of the DC comics, you know, Hall of Justice. and Yeah, and, and ironically, you could kind of see the progression. If, if you look at the uh, evolution of the Marvel movies, right? We started with very clearly, you know, the hero is the hero. The Superman is Superman. Like, what's to argue about? That's the good guy, right? And then gradually, like some years later, we got into this gray space, you know, with Batman movies that I love, Christopher Nolan's, right? Where, you know, Batman is not really super in any particular way except the money, right? And so, like, you know, maybe he makes some bad choices sometimes and maybe the bad guys are not so bad, right? Like, you can kind of relate with the Joker. And then, just before QAnon, there was a, a surgence of, of movies about villains as being like, you know, the focus. Like, well, maybe, you know, the Joker is actually not so bad at all. We're, we're going to make a movie about him. And uh, Thanos, you know, from um, another uh, major character that became the center. So the popular uh, demand, uh, because that's what the Hollywood industry feeds, right? It was very receptive to this change from, from black and white with, you know, heroes being white and villains being black to gray, to then finally saying, okay, I don't care about anything. I just want to watch the world burn. And, and that was kind of the, the setting for QAnon appearance. And then, of course, we had the perfect storm with um, covid virus you know being this huge unknown that's really dangerous we we don't know how to control it we can't see it right do yeah. we believe it do we do we think that it's a hoax and then the lockdowns that put us in isolation and the computers became our own our window into the world you know um, with all the algorithms and social media that guided us very quickly into the QAnon space um, and then the vaccines this is another you know big lightning rod right for a lot of people and they have been before but now it's just it's just become so immediate that the reactions to it are also very strong and immediate now when we deal with theory when we deal with um things like extremist groups um 
I've noticed how people refer to QAnon. I've noticed how they kind of uh, try and shoehorn it into being a terrorist group. Um, but I think it, it may be fair, and again, feel free to kick me in the shins if you think I'm wrong, but not all extremist movements are created equal, are they? Not everyone, not every group poses the same level of threat. Oh, absolutely. And we have to gauge our uh, counter reactions very carefully because, uh, for example, what happened after 9-11 is there was such a, a panic and a moral reckoning in the United States, for example, that we lashed out in every direction. You know, we, we went to th these wars in Iraq, for example, for which there was no good reason, except that, you know, we were scared, we were angry, and we gave the mandate to our government to engage in this, in this war that cost us so much money and so much suffering and, and so much loss of life, right? And the war on terror that the Bush administration instituted has been such a persecutory mechanism for average Muslims. It, it caused such alienation um, and, and persecution among them that it actually became its own radicalizing mechanism because Muslims around the world came to see the war on terror as the war on Islam. And some of these overreactions on behalf of American government were then used by ISIS as a recruiting mechanism to, to say to people, you know, in Muslim countries and, and even in Western countries to say to Muslims, look, the Western governments don't trust you. You're not the same. You're treated as less than you're, you're humiliated. Come fight for us. We're going to fight for, for your rights. Right. So this is a lesson that we really should take to heart when dealing with things like QAnon before we classify them as the next ISIS, because in all fairness, we can quantify this problem. There is about you know, 15 to 20% of Americans who consistently endorse QAnon beliefs on national polls. That 15 to 20% of American adults projects to about 30 million Americans, give or take. 30 million Americans believe QAnon conspiracy theories. But the number of QAnon followers who were ever implicated in any ideological crime is around 70. And that includes those who participated in the January 6th insurrection. And then it doesn't, it doesn't mean just you know, violent crime. It means ideologically motivated you know, entering um, a government building without permission, right? So 30 million versus 70 people. We have to scale our efforts accordingly, right? As opposed to, for example, right-wing militia groups, which number, again, in the US, because that's where, where I know my stuff, right? Uh, they number in maybe like 10, 20,000 people, but they have been responsible for 75% of all lethal ideological attacks in the United States since 9-11. Three quarters of all lethal incidents that were ideological were the work of right-wing militia groups. And so, if you're thinking about which of these to address, I would suggest we should focus on the right-wing militia groups, even though ideologically they may not be as lurid 
and engaging as QAnon and may not be as interesting for the media to talk about, but as security practitioners and as people who understand numbers and political problems, this is a much bigger problem with a much larger number of individuals presenting danger in absolute terms and in relative terms. Okay, now we, this enters into the, the realm of regulating opinion and regulating action, which you wrote about recently with your colleague, Clark McCauley. Um, can you, and this takes us into slightly nerdy territory for the listeners, but can you describe the two triangles that you have in the recent paper that appeared in Perspectives of Terrorism? Um, so the two pyramid model, um, I, I kind of vaguely already referred to it when I described the difference between radicalization and opinion and radicalization and action. Yeah. So if you can imagine two pyramids, uh, one for opinion and one for action, um, you can roughly place the population of, of people interested in a particular idea or cause um, into those pyramids so that most people, the majority, will be on the lowest level of the opinion pyramid. They, they don't really care one way or the other. Um, and then a little higher up, there will be a smaller proportion who will support the ideas, um, but just kind of, you know, without really thinking too much about it. And then an even smaller proportion higher up will justify, um, you know, violent um, radical action, but only in opinion, right? And then in the action pyramid, you have a similar division where the majority will never do anything radical, and then a smaller proportion um, will engage in maybe activist um, participation, so they will not cross legal boundaries, they will not engage in violence, but they will do something about ideas they care about. And then above those, we have people who are radicals, but not terrorists. Maybe they will um, materially support a terrorist group, uh, but they will not themselves kill anybody or plant bombs. And then at the pinnacle of the um, radical action pyramid, you actually have the very, very small minority who are going to engage in terrorism. And so um, we have, you know, data from surveys and from case studies that, that correspond with, with the very rough division in numbers um, to support the idea that, you know, it's only a very small minority who ever do anything about um, radical causes they believe in. Um, and it's also a minority who believe radical ideas. And there is only a tiny relationship between these two radical minorities. When now there is a there's a key section in that in that paper which uh, anyone who bothers to, to read it, it illuminates things very, very well. Uh, when it comes to the notion of policing action and policing opinion, particularly when it comes to opinion, you talk about the fact that if you begin to police opinion, you may in fact reinforce people and cause them to not rethink their position. Um, and make the problem greater. Can you just expand upon that? Because I think that's something that 
is a particularly useful reflection in an era when uh, people want to ban things on social media, um, block, uh, sanitize the world of anything that they think is particularly objectionable. Um, get to it, are you able to just talk about that a little bit in terms of the logic that underlies that concept of, you know, uh, not policing ideas to the point where you're actually making people more radical? Right. So uh, I think early theories of radicalization um, that came out, like, uh, on the heels of the 9-11 attacks, they presumed that ideology and action went hand in hand. And so de-radicalization programs that were funded by the US government and, and allied government uh, governments uh, very often targeted ideas. They, they, they put these people into camps or you know, they brought them in however often um, you know, uh, to talk about ideas and, and counter ideas. Um, and we've had this going on for long enough and it costs us gazillions of, of dollars um, and the problem is that we can't really see any change that can be measured based on those interventions. In other words, we can counter all the arguments in every single way all day long for years, you know, putting our, our, our best uh, talkers and best money behind them uh, and putting them in front of, you know, people who are already radicalized or are in danger of, rad of being radicalized. And at the end of the day or year, however long we're, we're working at them, there is really no difference in their likelihood of acting in a way that is radical or consistent with the terrorist um, you know, action. Um, so the US government has finally recognized the utter failure of, of these kinds of program. They've cut um, funding for it, and they've moved to a different modality, which is more like a community health perspective, um, which I, I think, you know, it's great, and I hope it's going to work. The jury is out until, you know, we've implemented some of these changes. For, for what I, from what I understand, they're now soliciting um, grant proposals to, to work out something like, like this alternative. Um, but the point is, our best efforts at de-radicalization um, based on changing people's minds have failed miserably. And what I already told you about the empirical data we have that, that show that radical action is very tangentially connected with radical opinion would tell you that probably, you know, we're never gonna succeed. We can put the whole Hollywood behind this and it's not gonna help to de-radicalize people. So at the same time, um, you know, policing opinions is, is very difficult in a democratic society. In the United States, we have the First Amendment protecting people's right to free speech. Um, and the, anytime the government moves to curb those freedoms, it provides ample fodder for all of these right-wing groups to capitalize on these incidents and use it as radicalizing material um, to bring in new members, new donations, and just fire up their base. So it's actually counterproductive. Not only does it not help, in other words, to police opinions, 
but it actually does the opposite of what you want to accomplish. Instead of reducing radicalization, not only does it not reduce radicalization, it actually increases radicalization. So policing opinions is a bad idea. Uh, we should be focused on action. There are a few reasons why we're not. One is it's just really hard to find these very few individuals who are bad actors, right? If, if you're a government and you want to make a substantive, substantive change, um, you want to sweep really wide, action is not something that's attractive because you're going to be looking for 50 individuals that are like spread out among millions of people who don't have a shared psychological profile, who are not easy to pick out, right? Um, so opinion is kind of a low hanging fruit. That's why we keep hitting it, okay? That's one reason. Another reason is that even though, you know, I gave you many good explanations for why ideology is not as important um, to focus on, to understand radicalization, to counter radicalization, it's really hard to get people to accept it. And by people, I mean my colleagues and government practitioners. We are just so um, imbued with the idea of, you know, every action has an explanation. Like, you know, with kids, they do something bad. We ask them, why did you do it? He doesn't know why he did it. It felt like a good idea at the time, you know? And most of our actions, this is like something that students learn in social psychology, and it's always a huge surprise. Most of our actions, most of the time, we don't have a good reason, a good reason to do it. We're very bad at predicting how we're going to react to certain things. And when we give explanations for our actions, research, experimental research shows that they're widely different from the actual reasons. So for example, you know, if I call you on the phone and ask you how your mood is, how you feel about something, something, um, you're going to give me some answer, right? But I'm, as a researcher, I'm calling you on either a really nice day when it's sunny, not too hot, beautiful weather, or I'm calling you on a really miserable day when it's rainy and overcast and just disgusting out there, you know? And we know that depending on the weather, your question is gonna be either, you know, more happy, easygoing, you feel okay about the politics and your prospects in the future, or it's gonna be more depressed and kind of pessimistic and so on. But when we ask people, what is the reason that you feel this way? They never say it's because the weather is bad, right? They always give some explanations. We're very good at coming up with explanations. So we seek these explanations, even when they're not there, they're never gonna be there. It's like the black cat that's really hard to find, especially when it's not there, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, with, with QAnon too, this insane interest in QAnon and perceived danger from QAnon is, as I can see, largely based in the fact that they are all about ideology. They give you these complicated, convoluted stories and projected future that they are part of. And you think, oh my God, they tell such a good story. They must be all, you know, falling in step as far as actions are concerned, because that's how we think humans work. But the truth of the matter, humans don't work this way. We're really good at telling stories. We're much worse <laughs> at actually doing anything. Um, yeah. So 
so focusing too much on ideology is detrimental and we should really break this habit. Now, um, we've mentioned, uh, it's been mentioned a fair bit that the FBI has called QAnon on a, a, a domestic threat. Uh, has that made it more difficult for people to assess the true bit of threat to society of QAnon, having that kind of um, label placed on it by a law enforcement agency? Um, it certainly made them a lot more cagey. So <laughs> it's very hard for me to get any of them to answer any of my questions on, on surveys, right? Um, they've been, a lot of them have been kicked off of mainstream platforms for content that spreads disinformation. So they feel like they, they, they then go to the dark web and these alternative platforms um, where they're actually in danger of being recruited by these right-wing militias who among themselves, they may mock QAnon, but at the same time as they're mocking them, they will say, well, we should just invite them in and explain to them how Q is full of crap. And, you know, really this is what we should do to get you know, the change we want, right? So um, this, this policing of, of them uh, possibly created a vulnerability um, in, in radicalizing some of them who otherwise may never have ventured outside of, you know, mainstream social media and definitely outside of the, the QAnon network. And now they are exposed to right-wing militia groups who are very eager to, to recruit new members. Um, so, Peter, I'm very mindful of the time, um, but there is a, a major influence in society um, called the media. Uh, I'm interested in some reflections from you on how the media should you know, report these kinds of movements, um, because it can be but the sensational reporting can catch people's eye, but it may also uh, not be um, accurate um, and also and counterproductive in some respects. How do you view the media's contribution to this kind of phenomenon? Uh, I'm torn because uh, I understand, you know, that there is right to free speech for the media as well. Um, and, and I certainly want them, having grown up in the Soviet Union, I very much want to preserve that right. On the other hand, you know, I, I think in America, at least, having large corporations um, have, you know, as much right to speech and, and financial support of, of certain media outlets as individuals um, has kind of eroded this, uh, you know, any, any hope for, for media being unbiased, you know, we have networks that are fully funded by ultra rich individuals and their corporations who pursue very specific interests that have nothing to do with public interest. Um, and so, you know, obviously, I would like the media to cover accurately and responsibly, you know, these various threats. 
but we know that they don't. Um, and the sponsorship is just one side of the problem. The other side of the problem is on the consumer side because the media will run what there is demand for, right? So we know from research again that, for example, stories about jihadi terrorist attacks get on average eight times as much coverage as do stories about right-wing attacks because there's just a lot more gluttony for stories about these, you know, other looking and acting people in strange clothes and with strange beliefs. Uh, and people don't want to know about somebody who looks exactly like your next door neighbor who, who is a terrorist. It's, it's a much scarier story that people don't want to know about. So I think, you know, one problem we need to solve for a better informational environment for all of us is, you know, this um, sponsorship by, by ultra-rich individuals and large corporations. But the other problem we need to solve is educating our consumers on what is good news and what is fake news, how to decipher the two, you know, whether it's uh, actually news or it's just entertainment, which some of our news anchors have won lawsuits by saying, you know, it doesn't matter what I say, whether it's true or not, because I am only here to entertain. I'm not here to inform, right? So, I mean, I don't know what it would take to solve these two problems. They're major problems, but I definitely see them as, as um, kind of being unsustainable in the long term. Sophia, um, we could talk all we could talk all night in uh, in your terms. There's a lot. There's a lot of uh, as we speak, more questions coming to my mind. But um, that point on the media is a convenient point at which to close. Where can people get uh, your book uh, if they're interested in buying pastels and pedophiles? Okay. It's got this beautiful cover. It's like the prettiest book I have written. Um, it's with Mia Bloom, and you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble um, or the publisher, Stanford University Press. You can buy it directly. Um, I believe it's got to be available in Australia, right? Uh, yeah, I, well, I've ordered, I've ordered a copy um, through Stanford University Press, which put me on to the, yeah, all of that. But it, it'll, it'll come in the mail and I'll definitely read it. Look, Sophia, thank you so much for having a chat with me today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.